Well, good morning, everybody. As I was uh, walking up at the beginning of service, Ashley's husband, thank you, Ashley, by the way, if I didn't say that, I did. Uh, Ashley's, Ashley's husband, Patrick, grabbed me by the elbow and with a look of uh, intensity and compassion in his eyes, he said, I'm praying for you. Because he knew I'm about to preach Jude 5 through 16. Um, and so I always say, I'm going to pray for y'all, you pray for me. And probably to some extent every Sunday, I know I mean it, but I'm very aware of <laughs> how much I mean it this Sunday. I've actually, in all honesty, spent obviously some time in the scripture, and it is rich and beautiful. There's so much for us. This is such a gift from God. And yet there's some uh, intensity here. There's some strangeness here. And, uh, and so we're going to really need the Holy Spirit to help us understand and see, um, and yet all scripture is profitable. All scripture is breathed out by God. And so uh, once again, we're going to do what we always do. I'm going to pray for y'all. I invite you to pray for me. And then we're going to continue in our second week of Jude. So let's pray for one another with one another. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this moment. We thank you for the book of Jude and the heart from which it was written, empowered by you, Holy Spirit. We pray that we would listen to all you have to say today. And as always, and especially this morning, I pray that I would be helpful and a gift and a blessing to my friends as I, I call us all to cast our eyes on Jesus and see the hope and the love and the life that we have in you, Christ, and in you alone. And it's in your name we pray. God's people said, amen. Amen. There's a quote from Winston Churchill where Churchill said, those who fail to learn from history are doomed to repeat it. I think I have a picture of Mr. Churchill, and that looks like a man who's going to say awesome things like that, right? Those who fail to learn from history are doomed to repeat it. That, that notion, that heart, though, like things really similar were said before that by other men and women, and I think even the, the heart of of that quote is found in scripture again and again. Paul says this in Romans chapter 15, verse four. He said, for whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through encouragement of the scriptures, we may have hope. And so there's this refrain, there's this message all through scripture that if we fail to remember truth God has shared with us by his word, we're gonna end up in dark places. If we fail to remember truth God has shared with us by his word, that Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever, like the author of Hebrews said, we find ourselves led away so easily to dangerous places. And as we begin this second Sunday digging into the book of Jude, I want to remind us that Jude is a letter written in love. This is authored by Jesus' little brother, and he wanted to write one thing. He wanted to celebrate. He was eager to write about the common salvation he shared with this early church, but love demanded that he switch gears, he take a different direction, and he write about something else. And in the passage today we're unpacking, Jude has some intention things to say, yet every single thing he's going to say to us is saturated, driven by love, empowered by the Holy Spirit, and, and coming through this man, we're going to hear again and again things that are said from love, calling us to the love of God, a love that fights evil, 
a love that, that shines a light in the darkness, a love that seeks to rescue us, that's even willing to hurt or offend or make uncomfortable because he loves us that much. To, to remember the context, this is what we talked about last week. Briefly, Jude wrote in verse 4, For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. So Jude says, hey, there's two dangers, two poisons that are present in this early church that he's writing to. The first is a a distortion, a perversion of the grace of, of God into sensuality, which leads to the denial of Jesus as Lord and Master. And he says, certain people, we don't know who, but he's going to say, hey, certain people I, I've heard and I know, certain people have crept in like spies into this church and they're, they're planting these seeds of denial of Jesus and perversions of grace. They're saying the grace of God is something that it isn't, namely a license to do whatever you want to do, particularly in terms of your sexual activity. And in doing so, and in leading people into this sin, they're denying Jesus as Lord, not so much with the things they say, but more so with the lives that they live. And, and one of the most important things we need to remember as we dig into Jude is that this, this is a presence in the church. These are people in the church that profess faith in Jesus. They're singing the songs. They're praying the prayers. They're receiving communion. They're leading Bible study. They're pursuing leadership. They aren't coming in pronouncing like, hey, I'm a false teacher. I'm a, I'm a pretend follower of Jesus here to distort and deny. But they creep in unnoticed. It's not immediately obvious who they are. But they're, they're proclaiming a lie. And the lie again is God's only about grace. He makes no demands or expectations. He would never judge They're saying we can live and do whatever we want. God is obligated to forgive us. I was reminded this week of a book I read called Stop Asking Jesus Into Your Heart by a guy named J.D. Greer, a pastor, I believe, in North Carolina. And he tells two stories in the first chapter of Stop Asking Jesus Into Your Heart. The first, he refers to his own struggle with the assurance of his salvation as a teenager and how he got baptized like nine times just because he thought any time he sinned, he had to, had to kind of recommit his life to Jesus. He would, he would lose his salvation, and he was living in constant fear of his, his status before the Lord. But then he tells another story, really, at the other end of that spectrum. And he tells a story as he was uh, probably in his 20s. He's, he was playing pickup basketball with a group of guys regularly, and, and one guy really stood out because he constantly just, he, he cussed so much and so profoundly it was like art. He just had this, this such a foul mouth and he always boasted in a really gross and demeaning way of his sexual conquests. He was always talking about the women he had slept with. And so J.D., with a heart for this man, he moves towards this man, and they begin to play a pickup game one-on-one. And J.D. begins to share his story, his personal testimony of what Jesus did in his life. And the guy says, stop, wait a minute. And he takes the ball, and he goes, are you witnessing to me? And and J.D. was kind of taken aback because he 
was surprised that this, this guy know what, knew what witnessing was. And J.D. kind of said, well, yeah, I, I am. And he goes, that's so awesome. So, no one's witnessed to me for, for so long. Hey, don't, don't worry. When I was a teenager, I went to youth camp, and I, I walked the aisle. I prayed a prayer. And man, even in through, through high school, I was really involved in my, my youth group. I memorized scripture and, and went every week. But then when I graduated high school, I discovered sex. And I really was uncomfortable and, and, and thought it was outdated that I should have to, you know, listen to some antiquated book as to what it said I should do. But I'm still good with God because I prayed that prayer. And he actually pro- pro- professed to J.D. some really deep understanding of some things that were theologically true. But his message was, hey, God has forgiven me once and now I can do whatever I want. I don't need to worry about obeying or following. He's not my king or Lord or savior. He makes no demands on my life. He is just like this, this divine genie. And I rub his lamp and he gives me forgiveness and I can do whatever I want. John, the apostle of love, in his letter, first letter to the church, 1 John, in the second chapter, John writes this. He says, by this we know that we've come to know him, him being Jesus, if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him truly, the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. So that's the tension. That's the danger in this early church. You have teachers that are coming in saying, hey, we've got license to do whatever we want. We don't need to worry about following the commands of the Lord because we have the grace of the Lord. And Jude says, hold my drink. I have a letter to write. I'm about to take you to school. And, and Jude, he's going to bring some warnings here. He's going to first warn through historical evidence. He's going to go back like a history professor. He's going to get us into a time machine and say, hey, let's remember some things. Like the warning from Churchill, let's not forget history lest we be doomed to repeat it. Let's remember the history of who God is and what he does in the face of people who rebel and reject and wage war against him and sin. And then Jude's going to warn through poetry. His heart's going to overflow in love, and he's going to write beautifully about the type of, of influence and leaders these people who are planning these lives are. And then finally, practically, Jude is going to warn in some ways that he just says, hey, look out for these qualities, these attributes in false teachers that seek to distort and pervert God's grace. And his point under all these things is everyone is under the authority of God. So first, Jude shows us warnings from history. Warnings from history. Jude begins, as he reminds the church, examples in history where God justly judges people who rebelled against him. And he's going to share about six different examples. Three are epic events. Three are individual stories. And the first thing he brings up is an unbelieving people. An unbelieving people in verse 5, Jude writes, Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, I love that he says Jesus, right? Yeah, my older brother, my older half-brother, yeah, who who has existed for all time, he was the one who freed a people out of slavery in Egypt, the Son of God. 
And Jude writes, afterwards, destroy those who did not believe. So Jude holds up for this first example, the apostasy of the Israelites after they'd been delivered from Egypt. Apostasy is the act of refusing to follow or obey or recognize authority, divine authority. And so Jude's going to take us back in this time machine and imagine we're just up on a hill and we're looking down on a multitude of people, thousands upon thousands of people. And these people are journeying together and these people have seen and experienced firsthand extraordinary things from God. They were once slaves in Egypt, and yet God brought his judgment on Egypt and then the nation that enslaved them. And after the Egyptian pharaoh refused to let them go, God brought his judgment on that nation and demanded their release. And then when they were on, on the road to freedom, when that nation decided to try to recapture them into the bondage of slavery, God miraculously parts the Red Sea and they walk on dry land into freedom. And then as they're journeying in this wilderness, God provides bread from heaven. He provides miraculously water from a rock. He provides victory against their enemies. He gives them his very presence by day in the form of a, a cloud that encompasses and leads them. By night, by, by the presence of like a pillar of fire, it is evident with their own eyes that God is with them. And above all, he, he makes a sacred promise with them, a covenant, and says, hey, I am your God. You're going to be my people, set apart, sacred, holy, and a picture to all the earth as to who I am and what I want to do, that I'm a compassionate and just God, the one true God. He does so much in so many ways. And in response, all, in response to all that God's done, what, is, what do these people do? They worship a, a false gods. They make a, a cow out of gold and they give it all the credit. This cow did all these things for us. They complain constantly. They even whine that they want to go back into slavery. And when they get a glimpse finally of this perfect, beautiful land that God had promised them, when they, when they scout it out, they're so scared that the, the people that inhabit that land are, are tough. They're so fearful to step into that land. They lack such faith. After all they'd seen that, that God has done for them, after all they'd experienced, they're, they're so afraid they actually tried to murder Moses and God's leaders that God had put over them. And so listen to what God asks Moses in Numbers 14, 11. He says, how long will this people despise me? How long will they not believe in me in spite of all the signs that I have done among them? So in the face of this astonishing unbelief, God pronounces judgment on these people. In Numbers chapter 14, verse 32, God says, But as for you, your dead bodies shall fall in this wilderness, and your children shall be shepherds in the wilderness for 40 years, and shall suffer for your faithlessness until the last of your dead bodies lies in the wilderness. According to the number of days in which you spied out the land, 40 days, a year for each day, you shall bear your iniquity 40 years, and you shall know my displeasure. I, the Lord, have spoken. Surely this I will do to all this wicked congregation who are gathered together against me. In this wilderness, they shall come to a full end, and there they shall die. So Jude's holding up this historical example 
of God's judgment to a people who once powerfully experienced God's deliverance, but after continual and, and egregious unbelief, God brings judgment. And Jude's saying, hey, anybody can experience God powerfully, yet despise him profoundly. And so the message from Jude is God judges justly those who reject his rule. Jude takes us from unbelieving people to unruly angels. He says in verse 6, And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he is kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of that great day. Jude here shows that God even judges heavenly beings who, who had first-hand experience of the glory and the power and the majesty of God in heaven. And he talks about a moment in history long ago where angels, messengers of God, didn't stay or keep within their God-given position of authority. And so now they're kept in eternal chains in gloomy darkness. And commentators are going to say, theologians are going to say, that Jude's referring to this really mysterious, strange story found in the opening verses of Genesis chapter 6. And the story is just succinctly that early on in the story of humanity, a group of angels noticed how attractive human women were, and they made a willful decision in some way to rebel against God by having sexual relations with those women. And thereby, they, they rebelled, they transgressed their God-given limitations. The author of Hebrews is going to tell us that angels were created to be ministering spirits. They were sent to serve God. In a real way, their, their, their purpose was to protect people, and yet these angels rejected God's design, and they bring harm to humanity. And it is a super strange story, right? If you want to go down that rabbit hole, like email me, and we can go have a drink and talk about Genesis chapter 6. But, but here, Jude is making, in the midst of this strange story, he's making a strange and clear point. He's saying, hey, whenever you find yourselves falling into the temptation of autonomy from God, independence of God, to be unruly, to do as you please, rejecting God's will, declaring independence from your king, you're waging war. And Jude's point, this war waged against God by these angels leads to their life sentence. God judges justly those who reject his rule. And then Jude talks about not just an unbelieving people or unruly angels, but he talks about an unrighteous city in his third example. Verse 7, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desires, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Now, the details of the story are in Genesis 18 and, and 19. Two angels are sent from heaven by God to these cities, Sodom and Gomorrah. And apparently, they, these angels looked just like normal men. And they've come to, to, to live out and act out the judgment of God for the wickedness that had continually dwelled in these cities and to back up the very purpose that they're there, as evening comes, we're told in these chapters of Genesis that all the men of the city, young and old, they attempt to violate and assault sexually these messengers from heaven. And the story reveals just how profoundly sinful and broken and immoral and evil and dark these cities were. And so Jude holds this up as like a reverse example in some ways of these unruly angels. 
That it's now human men who seek to reject and rebel against God in violence and perversion. If you lived on the planet Earth in this moment in time, like, and you sought to follow Jesus, Sodom and Gomorrah were the worst places you could imagine to be. They were defined by total rebellion and unrighteousness. Other places in Scripture define, the, uh, define them as places of, of just total excess and opulence. And, and it wasn't just sexual sin and perversion that defined them. It was a disdain for the poor. And so God, in his judgment, he rains down fire and he lays waste, literally rains down fire and lays waste to these cities. And Judah is reminding us again that God judges justly those who reject his rule. And so Judah is showing the church through these examples what's happening in, in the midst of their local church. In verse 8, he says, Yet in like manner, these people also, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme glorious ones. Judas making a connection. He's saying, hey, these three historical examples, these aren't just ancient events in the past. The heart of the rebellion is alive and well in the church in the form of these false teachers. They're, they're not bringing anything new. They're just copies. They're ripoffs. They're unoriginal, perverse plagiarists. They're living a rinse and repeat rebellion against God. What they're doing has been around for a long, long, long time. Jude said these people rely on their dreams, meaning that, hey, they don't care about God's word. They only care about their own dark hearts. The message is God judges justly those who reject his rule. It's going to be the same story. With these examples shared, Judah's ready to, to give an application to the church. This is what he says in verse 9. But when the archangel Michael contended with a devil who was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. And you might be asking yourself, like, where is that in the Bible, Right? <laughs> I don't remember that. And, and because Jude is referring to a story that's actually not in the Bible. It's found in, at the time, a contemporary Jewish uh, piece of literature. And it was called the Assumption of Moses. And so what Jude is doing here as a pastor, like if, if Pastor JJ's up here and he refers to like C.S. Lewis's mere Christianity, right? That's kind of what the, 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 the Jude is doing here. It's not scripture, but it's a, maybe a helpful, well-known book and he tells a story of the devil showing up and essentially beginning to accuse Moses after his death in the presence of the angel Michael. And, and the message from the devil is, hey, Moses was a murderer. Moses had done things wrong. He shouldn't be allowed to enter into God's presence. There's a story that's similar to it in Zechariah chapter 3. But Michael, we're told in this, in this story, he acted humbly in a way, and he didn't pronounce a judgment against Moses. But he essentially says, hey, look, I'm leaving judgment up to the Lord. I trust him. It's not for me to say. And even as he rebukes Satan, he says, the Lord rebuke you. So did this story happen? Maybe, maybe not. I don't know. But, but Jude is using it as an illustration to make a point, right? So let's not miss the point. 
When I was a kid in the 80s, there was this uh, amazing Gatorade commercial that had this great jingle that I won't sing for you, but it was uh, about Michael Jordan, and it was uh, a bunch of little kids saying, uh, be like Mike. Y'all, If you're like 40, do you remember that? It was a great ad, right? And it gets stuck in your, your mind forever, but that's to be like Mike, right? <laughs> that's actually Jude's message here. He's like, hey, be like Mike. But not Michael Jordan. <laughs> be, like, be like Mike, Michael, the archangel. Like be a, be a person under authority that if we were going to be in the presence of the archangel Michael, like we would be tempted to worship him because of his power and, and just his beauty and his glory and his splendor. But even he is going to just be totally rooted in his role and in his life and his obedience under the authority of Jesus. When he's toe-to-toe and arguing and fighting with Satan, he's making it abundantly clear that he's under the authority of the Lord. And so if he lives that way, how much more should we live that way? And in doing so, we fight against unbelief in the unruly temptation to be autonomous and independent and, and to follow unrighteousness. Jude goes on to write, verse 10, but these people blaspheme all that they do not understand and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. So in contrast to how Michael is, the, the, these false teachers in the church, they don't understand God's authority. They don't understand the kingship of Christ Jesus. And they insult and reject the authority of Jesus. What they only know instinctively is their, their own dark passions, and they're following those, and those dark passions are destroying them. And then Jude goes on to rapid fire, three more historical warnings. And instead of these epic events, he gives individual personal stories of three men. In verse 11, woe to them, for they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's heir and perished in Korah's rebellion. They walked in the way of Cain. Genesis 4 tells us that Cain was the first person to commit murder in Scripture. He killed his own brother. But Jude is referring more to just the violence of Cain here. Before Cain killed his brother, he rejected God's authority. God, in love, if you read Genesis 4, he comes to Cain when Cain was angry and on a path of rebellion, and God warns Cain. He directs Cain. If you read it, it reads in a beautiful way as as a father calling to his son. He's trying to lovingly lead Cain, and Cain rejects everything God has to say and goes on to kill his brother. And we see by Cain's actions, he's teaching by his life, he's teaching that God's word means nothing. And the result of that rejection is the betrayal and murder of a brother. See, rejecting God's authority, Jude is reminding us it always hurts others. And for his rebellion, God judges Cain through banishment, and he becomes a wanderer and a fugitive. And Jude again is saying, God judges justly those who reject his rule. And Jude says, and abandon themselves for the sake of Balaam's error. This is in Numbers 22. Balaam was 
a, a man who f- fell into the love of money and fell into sexual sin. He was a teacher and a prophet to God's people. And there was a, a king, a king of Moab, who attempted him to, with money and riches to say, hey, instead of pronouncing truth, I want you to pronounce curses and lies over God's people. And at first, Balaam resisted, but eventually he succumbed to the temptation. And he took payment and he betrayed God's people for his own gain. And he hurt people. And Numbers tells us that he eventually made his home with a wicked city and that God brought war against that city and he was struck down. And Judah saying, again, God judges justly those who reject his rule. And Jude says, finally, and perished in Korah's rebellion. This is number six. Back to those people who had been led into freedom out of the slavery in Egypt. Korah was this person that was a part of that group. And he hated anybody telling him what to do. He was unhappy living under the authority of Moses. And so he builds up this contingent of people who try to violently rebel against God's leaders. And numbers tell us in a dramatic fashion that God caused the earth to literally open up and swallow Korah and 250 of his followers. And Judah's telling us again, God judges justly those who reject his rule. But I want us to remember that this letter is, even though it's serious and, and God is, is through Jude showing us these real examples in history of, of God who is compassionate and gracious yet is just that it's a letter written in love and what love calls us to often do is have our hearts overflow in poetry. And so that's what happens next. Jude, warning still, but with his heart filled, begins sharing warnings in poetry. In verse 12, he says, these are hidden reefs at your love feast as they feast with you without fear. Shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea casting up the foam of their own shame, their wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. The hidden reef at your love feast What what does that mean? Hidden reefs are disaster, right? Just below the surface. If we lived in antiquity and we were on our our ship and we're navigating the waters and we think it's clear sailing, but the tragedy and the danger is just right under the surface. There may be reefs that we don't know about that can sink our ship, cause harm and disaster. And Jude mentions love feast. He's talking about the Lord's table. He's talking about communion. He's saying, hey, when you're sailing together and you're following God's will and you're casting out as, as, as a people on a journey together, it's like you're sailing the seas and yet these false teachers in your midst will sink your ship if you don't see them and recognize and deal and they're even at the Lord's table. They have no concern with their sinful lives. He said they're shepherds feeding themselves. You know, David was like the picture of of leadership in the Old Testament. And David began as what? A shepherd. And, and, And an excellent shepherd. A shepherd who as a boy was willing to risk his life to fight lions and bears to protect the sheep. 
And Jesus, the ultimate leader, the ultimate shepherd, he says this in John 10, I'm the good shepherd, and a good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. But Judah's saying, hey, these people that aspire to be leaders that are, that are false teachers, they're false shepherds that snuck in, they're not shepherds at all. They're wolves. They, they feast on the sheep. They feast before the sheep. And they're using the sheep, not serving the sheep. Jude says, waterless clouds swept along by winds. Proverbs 25 says, like clouds and wind without rain is a man who boasts a gift he does not give. Jude's saying these, these false teachers are, are all talk. They proclaim to have spiritual truth and life to share, but there's actually no life that will ever come. They make promises they won't fulfill, like a, like a cloud that seems heavy with rain, but it just blows on by. Fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted. You know, tr- trees in late autumn, you'd expect to have fruit to give life. But these false teachers give no fruit. They're double dead. They're not only not bearing fruit, you can see their roots. They've been uprooted. Wild waves of the sea casting up foam of their own shame. They're, they're volatile. They're disruptive. Just imagine trying to swim out past the breaker and you're hit wave upon wave and pushed down. That's how these people are living among the church. I remember several years ago, I was in Orlando at a church conference and we wanted to just take like an hour, an hour and a half to see the beach because you're in Florida. So we drove to Cocoa Beach and it had been a long time since I'd been to the ocean. And I don't know if you've ever been to Cocoa Beach and it might normally be nice, but I've never even thought in my mind, I'm going to regret taking a trip to see the ocean with somebody that, as somebody that lives in Oklahoma, but when we got to Cocoa Beach, it was so gross, right? And it was gross primarily because something strange was happening with the water where it, the waves had lifted up filth in the, in the form of foam and there was all this trash and just funk that the ocean had spewed up. And that's the picture that comes to mind here, like waves spinning up filth and foam from the ocean. These false teachers bring gross stuff. And finally, wandering stars from who, uh, for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. In the ancient world, right, what's the purpose, or for what purpose did people rely on stars? For, for navigation, right? And yet, if a, if a star is wandering, if you can't count on it, it'll lead you astray. So in light of this, after this poetry, Jude comes with his second strange illustration, to us strange at least, but very familiar to his early readers. In verse 14, he says, it was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, behold, the Lord comes with 10,000 of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of their deeds of ungodliness that they may have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. David Helm, theologian who wrote a great commentary on Jude, he says this, 
While Enoch is a biblical character, the quotation here is not from a Bible reference. It comes from a text called First Enoch. What Jude is doing here is exactly what he is doing with the assumption of Moses. He's pulling from the literature of his own day when it lends support by way of illustration to his claim. In this case of 1 Enoch, and especially the portion he grabs hold of, it supports his judgment that God will execute judgment against everyone who perverts his ways. This prophecy from Enoch, it's just driving home ungodliness. He uses that term ungodliness in one way, shape, or form four or five times, and he's going to say that is going to be ultimately met with God's judgment. And so just like Jude is saying with, with, with Michael, hey, follow his example. He's doing the same thing here with Enoch. Enoch lived in an ungodly culture. He lived right before the flood. But in the midst of an ungodly people, he walked with God. He remained faithful. He contended for the faith, what's good and right and true. So Jude is saying, hey, regardless of what culture teaches you about what's right, be like Enoch. Hold fast to what God has told you is right and true. And then finally, Jude is going to give us warnings of qualities. Jude ends by giving us qualities, attributes to look out for in these false teachers who've crept into the church. In verse 16, our final verse, he says, these are grumblers, malcontents, Following their own sinful desires, they are loudmouth boasters showing favoritism to gain advantage. I don't know how it happened, but somehow this week I came across Jeff Foxworthy. <laughs> and the older I get, the funnier he gets. So it's just as a 40-year-old dad, like that's right up my alley, right? A joke like you might be a redneck if a recipe for disaster applies to your wife's chili. Like I didn't think that was funny 20 years ago, and that's hilarious to me today, right? And my wife's chili is excellent, so don't tell her I said anything about it. But point being, like I couldn't not connect these <laughs> words with a Jew just being like, hey, you might be a false teacher if, right? You might be a false teacher if you're a grumbler, marked by complaining, and you make a practice of ingratitude. You might be a false teacher in the church planting the seeds of, of lies if you're malcontent, right? That you're actually cynical and jaded and you're marked by constantly complaining about your life and your place in life. You might be a false teacher in the church if you follow your own sinful desires. That's pretty straightforward. There might be a false teacher in the church if that person is marked by loud mouth boasting that they draw attention to and ultimately they're working to celebrate themselves, right? If the hero of the sermon is the pastor and not Jesus. You might be a false teacher if you show favoritism to gain advantage, if you're aspiring to be a leader in the church, always looking for an angle to earn favor, particularly with people who have means and wealth for your own advantage. That's yucky, right? That the spiritual leader is increasingly compassionate and nice to people the higher and higher their tax bracket is. Jude's saying, hey, look out for that. That's wicked and wrong. And so as we live in community or as we maybe move and we're looking for other spiritual communities to be a part of, if you're as assessing my life as a part 
of this church. These are things to look out for. Grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires, loudmouth boasting, and showing favoritism to gain advantage. These are qualities that Jude in love is holding up and saying, hey, look out for these things. This is an evidence of healthy spiritual leadership. So where do we go from here? Where, where I've been this week and where I invite us all to go is to take an honest assessment of our life. We pay attention to these warnings from, from Jude that he's been painting for us. Is the Spirit of God revealing places where we're walking in unbelief or where we're being unruly and independent of God's authority or we're walking in unrighteous rebellion? Are there places that the Spirit is holding up before us that that exists in our life? Are there ways where we're like that guy on the basketball court? We're celebrating the grace of God, but we're rejecting the lordship of Jesus. And we're distorting God's grace into sensuality. Are we professing Jesus as Savior, but denying him as King and Master? This letter was written for us to contend for a faith that was once delivered. But the the first place we have to start is to make sure we're actually abiding in that faith with our lives. And so if we find ourselves convicted this morning, this is God's invitation to us. This is 1 John 1, verse 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. So if we're feeling heavy under the weight of Jude's words, we ought not despair But we should lift our eyes and see the invitation of a loving father who is inviting us home to run away from rebellion and run to grace and forgiveness and the kingship of Jesus. Let's stand and pray. Father, we together, we pray to be people who who refuse to distort your grace into something that it's not. We pray that we be people who embrace and celebrate and flourish and proclaim that we are people living under the authority of King Jesus. Would you help us grow in taking ever more seriously your judgment, God, against sin? And may we stand firmly in belief in the finished work of Jesus, knowing that, that we don't have to earn anything For salvation, it's freely given, but because of the salvation we truly receive that we we want to hate sin like you hate sin, Jesus. We want to delight in obeying you because of who you are and what you've done. Jesus, we pray this in your name and God's people said, amen.